as a young man, when, when my wife and I, when, when we were first married, I had a job in a steel foundry. I still wish in some senses I had this job, but it was a great job. In this foundry, we basically poured molten metal into, into these um, casting forms. And when the hot metal would get poured in, it would go in and they would, they would form buckets for, for um, big, huge trucks, teeth to go on the end of the buckets, conveying chains, big chains. Some, some chains that we made, one link was the size of a Volkswagen um, Beetle. I mean, they were huge stuff that got used in mines, mostly in Australia. Just a great job. And my job in this process um, it was called flogging. I don't know if you've familiar with that term, but what this was, was the, the, the casting would get poured, it would come out of, of its place, they would take it apart, and then they would bring in the casting and put it on, on, a, on, on the floor in front of me, and I had two tools. The main tool was a sledgehammer, and all I did as a flogger was beat the dross off of these big molten casting things because there would be these little parts that stuck out from where the casting stuck together and it needed to be hammered off with a sledgehammer and, and then ground with a grinder that I could barely pick up, just like these big, meaty, manly kind of, kind of ground, ground um, grinder things. And it was, it was a great job working in this foundry and, and it produced um, a, a work ethic in me, and still when I think of that job, like my testosterone levels like raise, like I just, uh, I, and it's probably why I still have this chiseled physique today is because of when I did that way back then. Um, now, what was interesting about this job, I would come home from work and you know, you, you saw what you did throughout the course of the day, so you know you accomplished something, and there's something in the heart of a man especially that you really want to know that you've done something of value, and I could point to these big pieces of metal and see what I did, but part of that process, you know, I come home, and I'm feeling like a, a man, and, and I just want to go to my wife, and I would say, honey, give me a big hug. I had a great day today, and she would be like, ah, like, stay away from me because I didn't realize that I was just caught up in my day but I had this um, veneer of foundry soot all over me and, and it was all of the dust and the smoke and the, the burningness and, and everything from the day that caked itself onto my skin and then I would sweat and it would, it would you know you kind of get the picture right so I don't know why she wouldn't want to hug me when I got home from work, but I had this, I had this kind of veneer on, on me as I, as I came back from work. And again, it was, it was a great job, but as, <laughs> I tell that story because as we kind of look at the book of Romans, especially now as we go into chapter two, what Paul is pointing out to his audience, which are the religious Jews, what he's pointing out to them is that their religion is often just this thin veneer, this soot that is covering their lives. And even though they might feel good about this religious veneer over their lives, they still are every bit as sinful and broken as people as everybody else who's not as religious as they are as these religious Jews. And so Paul kind of is pointing out here that the religion by itself is powerless. Religion by itself is, is powerless. It's powerless to change hearts. It's powerless to change lives. It might help change behavior. It might help change the behavior, which isn't a terrible thing, but it's oftentimes nothing deeper than that. 
And a lot of times when, when these, in his audience, they would be very religious, very devout. They would know their scriptures. They would know the rules. They had this air of superiority about them. And so Paul is basically going to be pointing out to them, as we kind of go along here, that the religion, especially the veneer of religion, is not something that can save you in itself. If you remember in Romans chapter 1, do you remember to Romans chapter 1? I've tried to forget Romans chapter 1, but if you remember Romans chapter 1, basically what he, Paul is doing, he's laying out his case for why all people, all people, religious, irreligious people, why all people are in need of the gospel of Jesus. And, and, and so what he does, Paul, in Romans 1, is he paints this very graphic picture of the corruption of the human race, a corruption in which we see all around us even to this day. And now as he goes to chapter 2, he's anticipating that his, his, his Roman audience of these religious Jews are going to have some objections to what he's going to say. And so he's kind of preparing them. He's almost setting them up so that he can, he can win the argument because he knows he taught them for like 20 years. He taught Jews how to be good Jews before he came to know Jesus. So he knows all the tricks in the book. And so here he is, he's going he's gonna to expose to these, these religious Jews the hypocrisy, the judgmentalism that, that can rise up, that gives them this false veneer of spiritual competence that they have. Because in chapter 1, when Paul's talking about how the world suppresses truth, he's talking about how um, the, the world is caught up in broken sexual identity and how all of this plays out. He knows that these Jews, these religious Jews, are going to be like, you go get them, Paul. Yeah, those guys, they're terrible. And they're, they're all just like amenin. That's right, Paul. Tell that big bad world what, what's wrong with them. And so Paul kind of says, all right, all right, well, hey, you guys, there, there's something I got I to gotta tell you. And I just want to say, um, whenever, and we're going to deal with this over the next number of weeks as we start talking a lot about the law and Jews and, and Gentiles, it's, it's, it's a fair application or fair reading of the text. Whenever you see Paul addressing Jews of that day, you can say, well, what are these Jews? What is this? Do I just check out? No. I think it's a much bigger picture than that, and we'll see this in this chapter. When, whenever Paul mentions Jews, you can kind of in your mind say, in our daily context, these would be church-going Christians, many of them. You just can look at it from that sense, because Paul is talking to an audience here, and they just happen to be religious Jews, but the problem that the religious Jews had aren't the, so different than the problems that I have, and that a lot of us, or most of us, would have. So, to give a little bit of context, let's just read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, which is what, we, what I preached on here a couple weeks ago. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You're storing up wrath for yourself uh, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He, rendered, he will render to each one according to his works. He'll render to each one according to his works. So, what he's saying here basically is um, what is going on, what you are looking back in chapter one and you're shaking your head out and you're thinking, I can't believe those big bad people of this world. Paul's saying, therefore, hey, you judge them. You think you can judge them? You can't judge them. Um, and actually, I, I read the wrong one while I was up there. So let me reread re this here from my Bible, which is why I should keep it in front of me. Therefore, you have no excuse 
O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge. You practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, again, religious Jew, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you are going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume that the riches of the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God um, is meant to lead you to repentance? So there he is. He's kind of talking. He's kind of exposing how these these righteous Jews um, are are lost in the veneer of their religious behavior. And so Paul is saying, you guys need to look within yourself. Don't have this false sense of security, this false comfort, um, this false religiosity that's going on. You need to look inside yourself because really, if you're honest, if you look inside yourself, are you really that different than those other people in chapter one? Are you really that different? I think a lot of those religious Jews would say, oh, yes, I don't do any of the terrible things that they do. Um, But Paul says, really? Okay, if that's the way you think, let's just continue on then in the rest of this chapter. Um, So it says, look within yourself. And so with that kind of being the backdrop, now let's go ahead. Now we'll read the rest of our passage. I'm just going to read verses 5 through 16 of chapter 2, and you can follow along. It says this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patient and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written upon their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All right, so we get to kind of jump in here. Paul's basically saying, you religious people think that you're better than these irreligious people? Um, Well, we have to be careful. And to put it in our context, we could say, we could say, we as Yakult Community Church, a body of believers in church, we think that we're better than the the non-attending unbelievers in the world around us in North County, if we do, we better be careful in how we look at the world around us. And so as he goes through this process, he kind of starts to expose some things in them. He says in verse 6, he says, he will repay each one according to their works. Um, Verse 7, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good, which basically what that means is that they have a consistent habit of doing good in their, in their life, whether um, whether others are watching or not, they seek glory and honor and immortality. That is that 
what we do here is we, we seek it from the creator. We seek it from him, not from created things. Um, we seek these things from somewhere else. Now, verse, nine, verse 8 says this, but the wrath of God to those who are, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. And basically, those who put their own self-will ahead of God's will, this is what these guys were doing in their veneer of religion and gals, and, and those who seek their own glory instead of the glory of God. They do this in a religious way. They, they sound very religious. They look very put together, very polished. But under the veneer of their religious activity, there's, there's an emptiness there. So verse 9 says, There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. For to the Jew, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. So you might be thinking to yourself, if you are, this is a good thought. You know, what is Paul, ta- is Paul changing his mind here? Didn't he just in chapter one tell us that salvation is not based on the work that I do, but it's based upon the righteousness of Christ because verse 6 kind of seems to say the opposite thing. It says in verse 6 that God's going to repay each one of us according to our works. So, so what is it? Does he judge us on our works? Does he judge us on, on the righteousness of Christ? This is kind of the tension that Paul is trying to bring up. But verse 6 is a really interesting verse because it actually, make a note here, you can read it in your devotions this week. Um, it's referencing Psalms chapter 62. And in Psalms chapter 62, what what the psalmist is saying here is the psalmist is complaining. He's frustrated with a group of religious people, this religious veneer, who honor God with their mouths. They honor God with their, 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 their feet. Um, but they, they, in the privacy of their own heart, they run to evil and they run to violence. And so they have this external show of religion, but internally they're still filled with filth. And, and, and grossness. And, and so, so basically, yeah, what Paul is talking about here as he goes through this is that being religious does not equal an inward transformation. It, being religious on the outside isn't what God's searching for and seeking from his children. So at, at the end of the day, what we're seeing here is what's going to matter isn't so much the external, but the internal motivations, the internal heart behind these things. Some works, as you know, some works can look really, really good on the outside, but the motivation for doing those things is ugly on the inside. And when I was in high school, I've got one of these ugly examples. When I was in high school, and I'm trying not to justify myself because I truly wasn't wrong in this. It was who I was associating myself with. In Dr. Bob's expositor Bible class this morning, they were talking about the, the way that bad company corrupts good character. Well, I was in some bad company at this particular instance. I may have told this story for those of you who have been around. Just pretend you haven't because I can't remember what I do and don't tell. But anyhow, so I'm in high school and we are um, at my friend's house and we were playing catch with the football out in the front in the street. And my friend, who just, by the way, his name is Christian, doesn't bode well for this story, but we're out on the street and um, playing catch with the football and his neighbor, um, the, the, the lady's cat comes out and he doesn't like the cat. So he takes the football and throws it at the cat. Well, he scares the cat. What does the cat do? It runs and hides underneath the car 
of its owner. Just then, the owner comes out, very sweet lady, comes out, gets in her car, backs over her cat. Oh, horrific. Horrific scene. Sorry to put that in your mind, but that's, this is a true story. And so, in any case, we, we obviously, we go over there uh, to, to bring some compassion, and we go over, and she comes out, and it's just a messy scene, sad scene. And so she grabs her cat, and she says, you know, would you boys help me bury this cat? Well, of course, we're going to bury the, help her bury the cat. So we go through a house, and we bury the cat in the backyard. And, and so the whole time, you know, it's just like, ugh, just feel icky, you know, through this process. And as we, as we kind of come back into the house and we go to leave, she just says, I just want to thank you boys so much. It meant so much to me that you would take time to come and, and help, me, um, help me do this um, with my cat. And I'll stop, pause there for the story for, for, for just a second. Um, now, in this particular case, it, it may have looked good on the outside, this deed that we were doing. It certainly looked good to her. You know, she thought these guys are just... But really, what's motivating us, him, not me, what's motivating um, us in this process is we're just kind of trying to ease guilt and embarrassment and not wanting to get caught in the horrific nature of what we just, he just caused in this thing. And tr it's true, it wasn't me. It wasn't. Um, not saying I'm a big cat fan, but it wasn't me that did this. So um, basically what we did on the outside looked really good, but our motivation wasn't, wasn't honoring. It wasn't, wasn't of, of, good, of good character. And um, what makes this story even more horrific, if it could get any worse, we're about to leave after we've done this. She's just complimented us and she says, um, I, I like to help. I'd like to pay you guys for helping me do this. And I said, I said, no, 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 no. That we're happy to help, no problem. And she's digging in her purse. And we'll just, we'll just go. Christian says, okay. And he takes her money, a twenty-dollar bill. Isn't that horrible? Because she didn't realize she just basically paid a hit on her cat to this guy. <laughs> just, just a horrible story. What a true story. Um, a true story, and yeah, anyway, I, I, could, I could keep going. This story actually continues. I'm done. I'll, I'll move on at this point in time, but, 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 but the point is that the, the veneer of religiosity um, can oftentimes lead a person to, to serve and to do and to, to do these good things, but the inward motivation may be maybe not for the, the glory of God. It may not be because I love God so I love people so that I'm going to serve so. Um, it's more to um, get the pleasure of people, the approval of people, to hide our guilt or whatnot. Those are the kinds of things that, that are coming up here that Paul is trying to talk about. And he's saying the inward motivation, the inward character in life is what is going to count more. So when we look at this, when we look at this, um, are, are we saying here then God is going to, he's going to judge me by my works based upon my heart's motivation? So if I have a good heart motivation, does that then mean that that's what makes me acceptable in God's eyes? Well, that certainly is what God's looking for. But is that what we're saying? Is that what Paul's saying here? And, and I guess I want to pay very, very close attention because churches get divided and split over this very, very issue. Um, but is it that my works are something that save me? My motivations are something that save me? In, in one sense, in one very clear sense, absolutely not. 
because of Ephesians 2 and because of Romans 1. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's by God's grace in which he has lavished um, his love upon us through his son Jesus, and it's Jesus' blood that's been poured out on the cross that saves a person. However, the other way to answer that question in some senses is yes. Is yes because our lives are the very best illustration of what is actually going on inside. The way that we live our lives and the words in which come out of our mouth are the indicators of what is going on internally. And Jesus said, out of, you know, out of your heart, the mouth speaks. And so our, our lives, even though our good behavior and our, even our good motivations may be something that would make us acceptable to the world, the, the world around us, if, 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 it, if we don't have any of those things in our lives, then it could be an indicator of something else that's going on. Because you see, faith is not just about having the right head knowledge. We see that over and over in this passage. Faith in Christ isn't about walking down an aisle, about praying a prayer. Um, It's not about joining a ministry, joining a church, about getting baptized. All of those things are wonderful things, and we'll promote those things here. But, but, But true faith, true conversion is instead being rooted in the depth of what Christ has accomplished for us on, our, on the cross. And when that takes place, when that inner transformation begins to take place in us, then we cannot help but, because of the Holy Spirit's working in our life, to, to change. So do we live to try to be good? No. But if there is no good in the way that we live, there's probably no real change going on inside of our heart. Paul doesn't want to teach this, this blind moralism where a bunch of people in church are just doing good stuff. That's exactly what he's speaking against here. And so there really should be, according to this, when Christ Jesus takes up residence in our lives, in our hearts, it should radically affect the way in which we, we live, live on an external level. It should radically make a difference on how we, we talk about those people that are different than us and that believe different things than us. It, it should be rooted with a, a kind of a mindset to, to love others um, because we recognize that of the others out there don't have the same value and ethic of loving Jesus like we do. So it's, it's a critical important here. So basically, Paul, if I could sum it up like this, he teaches that, that we are saved by faith alone, okay? We are saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. Make sense? We are saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves us is never alone. It's always accompanied by um, a life that is bearing fruit. His stepbrother, Jesus' stepbrother, says it like this, faith without works is dead. So if there's no, if there's no fruit in our lives, if we're, we're not conforming more to the image of Jesus, um, and it's not showing itself... And first off, the worst place to, to evaluate this in our lives is here on a Sunday morning. The best place to evaluate this kind of stuff is when we are in our most comfortable spot, our, our, our most comfortable lane, which is at home or at school or at work or with our siblings. This is when we really know the, the ethic and the value of, of Jesus is taking residence in our heart when we, when we see that emerging in the places that are not church, <laughs> the other places of, of, our, of our lives. And so, so um, it goes on basically, um, in, in, in some senses, it really kind of boils down to kind of this main question here. The main question is, what does my life declare about my belief in Jesus? What does my life declare about what 
about what, um, what does my life declare about my belief in Jesus? How does my life look differently because of this? Verse 13 says this, the, the hearers of the law, it says in verse 13, the hearers of the law know what we need to know. When we, we read that, again, a Jew, is a, a religious Jew is, is one that has the law, um, but the hearers of the law, in our day, we might say those who possess the Bible, the law means a lot of things, actually means three main things, we'll talk about that later, but three main things in their context. But in our context, we could say the hearers of law, which would be those who possess the Bible, um, they are not righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law that will be justified. Again, um, he's making this point. It's not about having the right answers. It's not about having the book in your hands. Um, it's not about knowing the truth. What matters is the application of it. It's got to come from the heart. And so he kind of drives this point in from a different angle in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, just having the law doesn't save you. Um, so when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law unto themselves, though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written upon their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. That consciences is kind of pointing back to what he said in chapter 1, how, how all of, no one is without excuse because God has been revealed to all of human hearts um, through his revelation to them. So, Basically, he's pointing out here that the fact that underneath the heart of a religious person is the same kind of corrupt heart that exists in the non-religious person. It's the same thing. Uh, it, it, it's a veneer. And so when you pull back the veneer, when you pull back the layers of, of religion one day, what is going to be found there? What is going to be found under that, that mess that's been kind of uncovered? So look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus. We're saying here, one day, one day God is going to expose the hearts of both Jews and Gentiles, of religious and irreligious. That's what God's going to do. And we'll see through this religious facade or veneer or soot that seems to be covering. Um, that is not going to be a good day for anybody, for anybody. Righteous, religious, non-religious, when that comes back and we really see ourselves for who we are, but there's good news in this, and we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. And the reason why it's not good is because every heart is deceitful. Every heart is deceitful. He'll talk about it here shortly in a few chapters when he talks about that all people, all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this is really a powerful tool in, in our Christian arsenal. When we go to love on the world around us, um, we have this very same thing. It's always good when you have something in common together. And what do we have in common? We're all broken and sinful people. What's really the difference? Some accept the forgiveness that comes only by faith in Jesus, and others don't. But we can at least understand that it is not our religious behavior that makes us better than anybody else. And actually, it's not our forgiveness that makes us better, for, better than anybody else. It's just simply the fact that we're forgiven. That's it. And that should, that should be an encouragement to us as we look to love a world around us and make us more, more effective in our witness to a world around them. Now, um, if you're not buying into this completely, like you're thinking, I don't know, um, um, I wouldn't say this out loud, but I, I kind of am better than, I mean, if you see some of the people that own property around me, I mean, look at their place. I mean, it's a dump. Um, you know, they, just, they don't do things quite as well. Okay, if that's you, and I know it's none of you, but uh, let's just do this little exercise you've got on your bottom of your notes. Um, this little, basically, it's a quiz 
Um, and I know some people like to take quizzes, but um, you're going to take this quiz. Um, this is the Ten Commandments. It's probably the best example of us being able to tell where our heart stands. And make sure when you're filling this out as I go through it, don't let your neighbor see it. Okay, just don't let your neighbor see it. Um, so what I'm going to do with this is I'm going to read through, I don't have all of them in there, um, but, and that's not for any special purpose. Actually, the special purpose is we're going to talk about some uh, next week. But, but um, we'll go through, I'm going to read these commandments, and you just have to simply answer yes or no. You have to answer yes or no if, if, you, um, if you pass the test. So first one here, first commandment, can you say yes or no to this? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before you answer, let me just summarize what this is actually saying. Um, if you have no other gods before me, you're saying, I've never put anything before God in my life. I have never loved or I've never trusted or obeyed anything more than, than God. God has always been first in my thoughts, in my affections, in my actions. Worshiping him has always been the greatest passion in my life. So you have to answer yes or no to that. Number three, you shall not take my name in vain. Um, what does this mean? This is you saying, okay, I've always held the name of God in highest respect, never uttering it carelessly, nor have I ever desecrated God's name by calling myself as, um, by calling myself as follower, not representing him well. The way that I talk and the way that I act and the way that I spend money and drive... gives honor to God in whose name I attach my life and whose bumper sticker I plaster on my car. Yes or no? Number five, honoring of parents. I've always respected, yes, I've always respected and obeyed the authorities in my life. I have given them honor and willing obedience whether they are watching or whether they are not. This includes my parents, this can include teachers, this can include Officer Gosh, this can include the IRS, um, yes or no. Number six, you shall not kill. Whew, finally, right? I hope, I, I hope you could, well, wait a minute. I've never murdered anybody, but remember Jesus on, on the Sermon on the Mount? What did he say? You hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them. It's the same thing. Same thing. So, might have to scratch that one out if you answered it one particular way. Um, this is saying, I, I have not had hateful thoughts, nor have I taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to another person. Uh, I've never wished harm on anyone, even when they really angered me. Yes or no? Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Well, I've never had adult relations with someone outside the bonds of my marriage, nor have I ever entertained any kind of, same thing, any kind of sexual thought towards someone that I'm not married to. Jesus talks about the lust of the heart, it's the same. Yes or no? Committed adultery? Number eight, you shall not steal. I have never taken anything that does not belong to me. Anything. Um, this includes downloading illegal music, cheating in school, tax fudging, um, respecting others' belongings, of course. Uh, rights and creations of others have been completely truthful and fair and taking only what I've earned. 
I've never taken extra Burgerville sauce and filled my cupboard with them. Uh, I've never wasted my company's time by surfing on the web, Facebook and Twittering, tweeting, whatever. <laughs> uh, never taking credit. Never taking credit for something someone else has done. That's stealing. Um, and I've never ever let others assume good things about me which should have gone to someone else that weren't true. Yes or no? Number nine, you shall not lie. All right, so I've never bent the truth, if you want to answer yes to this. I've never bent the truth to get out of a bad situation. I've never stretched the truth to make myself look any better. I've never slandered anyone. I have always told the truth in every situation regarding every person I've ever known, and I've always fully fulfilled any promises I've made. Yes or no? Number 10, you're saying, uh, you shall not covet. I've never been greedy for something that wasn't mine, nor have I been jealous of the abilities, the looks, the position, the possessions of anybody else. I have rejoiced with others in what they have, glad that they have, have it, and glad when I don't have it. I've never complained about what God has provided for me, and I've always been thankful and fully content with what he has blessed me with in my life, yes or no. Okay, now is where you get to show your neighbor the answers to your test. Yeah. Eh, no. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Verse 17. Now if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, you who teach, you who preach, you must not steal, but do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? Paul's doing the exact same thing here that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount when he's exhorting, challenging, rebuking people to put away the veneer and look at the heart. Because we can say we don't steal, but there's plenty of examples from all of our lives where we take things that don't belong to us. And more often than not, it's not a physical thing. More often than not, it's, it's taking someone from somebody else in an emotional way. Um, every time we withhold um, grace from someone, that, that's a form of stealing. You could say don't commit adultery like he says here, but when we fantasize about someone else, that's committing adultery. He, he uses this term robbing temples. This is, this is what kind of cues us into the fact that he's talking figuratively because he's not talking about all of these Jews who would put on um, a, a black outfit and break into churches and, and hawk all their you know, awesome stereo equipment. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is, is how people in, in, in with this command, um, they don't worship idols physically, I mean, they don't bow down to idols, but when the pagan world, when the non-believing world bows down to an idol, what are they trying to do? They're, they're actually asking for some kind of blessing from God or from their idol, from their pagan, from their idol. So when they bow down, they're, they're trying to get something from that bowing down. That's why they do this. But with, with religious Jews, not us, but with religious Jews, they would crave money. They would crave respect. They would crave their, um, I almost said American rights. They would crave their Jewish heritage. They would, they, would crave, uh, they would crave all of this prosperity in their life. They craved power. 
And what Paul is saying is, you're robbing the temples. You're doing the very same thing to those people who bow down to Buddha. When, when, you, when you steal um, or you're groping for power, when you're groping for money, when you're seeking after all of these things um, to make yourself happy and you're using religion as the ways to do that. He's like, you're doing the same stuff as someone who's bound down to, to Buddha. Basically, as, as we look at this, what Paul is saying is, you all, religious Jews, you are using your religion to get something from God for yourself. You're using religion to feel better about yourself. You're using religion to, to lift yourself up instead of what religion is really designed to do, which is to be a tool to get more of God himself. See the difference? People use religion to get stuff from God and instead of the fact that when, when I apply this beautiful gift of, of tool, a tool that God has given us in religion, um, to get more of him. I get more grace in my life. I'm reminded of the fact that, yeah, I definitely am in need of a savior every day. Or as the psalm says, or the old song, every hour, every minute, I'm in need of this. And so my religious observance is a great and constant reminder how I'm nobody if I'm not at the foot of the cross. I'm nobody if I'm not remembering that every day I need a savior that's going to help me work through my marital strife, going to help me work through the difficulty at work or with friends, um, or with illnesses, or with, with financial strain. This is what we, we, religion is an opportunity for us not to focus on the external things, but to be reminded of who we are in, in God's sight. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's sad when, according to Paul's saying here to the religious Jews, they're using religion, they're using church as a way to feel better about themselves. And we see this, I see this, I'll just say this, not in my notes, so I shall, probably should be careful, but, you know, with one of these things where folks will come to church, they'll hit a hard spot in life, they come to church for a few weeks, and then they get what they want, and then they're gone. Now, the goal isn't to be at church, per se. There's value in church. The church is so much bigger than one place, and one, it's not a building, it's a people. We all kind of know that. But in, in other senses, um, we need one another to be reminded of how much we need to be forgiven, to be reminded how much we, we need to love one another. And, and so that's kind of the place that we're, we're at here. And that's what Paul is, is pointing out, is to be careful of this veneer of religion. And there's a number of ways we can see this come up. This can come up in, uh, in, uh, in one of the commentators I use. He, he says there's five indicators of, of uh, this veneer in our lives as Christians. And I'll say this when we're done. Um, smugness. Uh, we walk around like we got all, all together. The things that we say kind of point to the fact that we do a better job than anybody else in life. And so there's this smugness about us. There's this veneer of perfection. Uh, there's also the oversensitivity that can come out. When someone has got the veneer of religion on them, they can become super, super oversensitive. Like if anybody says anything that, that would challenge them, they don't handle it well because their whole identity is based upon their religious prettiness, the veneer that's around them. And so if this is you, you're the type of person that can't ever take correction from somebody else. Or if you get correction, you get defensive. You can't handle it. Um, and if you can't handle it, it's normally because, eh, it's normally because um, 
there's some misplaced importance on you in your own mind. Um, and honestly, that's just not the way that the cross works. Um, the one that we talked extensively about a few weeks ago was judgmentalism. So we got smugness, oversensitivity, judgmentalism. Um, this is, this is, is pretty bad um, because with judgmentalism, basically we, we could point out the faults of other people, but really we're just doing that because we feel, um, we, we see those faults within ourselves or we're, we're denial of those thoughts in ourselves. That's what was happening with these religious Jews. Um, but in this particular case, we are supposed to judge one another. We are supposed to judge. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 we are supposed to judge one another. Um, but our whole purpose in judging one another is to, to edify, to love, to, to encourage, to bring up. One of, one of uh, my brothers in Christ, one of our elders this week, saw something in me. And I was really tempted when he pointed it out to be oversensitive to it. Um, and it was gentle, and it was what I needed to hear. And God actually, with that perfect correction in my heart, used it just four hours later in another meeting. Um, and it was just perfectly timely. Um, but, but his judgment wasn't to hurt me. It was to encourage me, to challenge me, to grow. And that's the kind of judgment that we need. But the kind of judgment that a religious veneer puts on us is a judgment that, that basically is looking to put you down. It's looking to see harm, see you harm, see you hurt. And, and that's the kind of thing that Paul is exposing here. Uh, the, the fourth area of a religious veneer is just hypocrisy. We see this over and over again, hypocritical Christians. Um, and, and with this, these are, these are Christians that are all head knowledge. It's all up here. They have all of the answers. They probably scribble and love note, to take notes. They love to have the truth. They love to read the next book. Um, but the reality is the Bible is just a checklist in their heart and a checklist in their life. They don't see the Bible as something that's living and active. And every time its pages are open, it's saying, okay, Lord, I need surgery here. There's, there's a, a way in me that is sick, a way in me that's got cancer, a way in me that's wicked. And I need your word to go in like precision and to cut it out. And I know it's going to hurt when you do that. I know I'm going to have to deal with that pain as I heal. But as I heal, then I come out without that in my heart, in my life. Hypocrisy. The last one is just insecurity. Those who have a religious veneer over their life, they can be smug, oversensitive, judgmental, hypocritical, and just simply insecure. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? You know, is my value placed on how good I am as a person, or do I care more about what, what God thinks about me? So, I'll wrap this up. Any, any religion... Any religion that doesn't begin with a deep experience of God's grace that's grounded at the foot of the cross is going to leave you smug, oversensitive, judgmental, hypocritical, and insecure. That's where it's going to leave us. That's where it's going to leave us. I, I had a, a friend, uh, a good friend, this last week who told me that he was, um, he, he kind of disconnected from church life uh, and he ran into a, a difficulty in his life, and, and so he, he, he came back and says, I need, to, I need to get myself back in, in amongst people that love the Lord. And, um, and as he did this, um, he was basically saying, I just needed to be reminded, and he, he, he came to church, he said, I just needed to be reminded again of, of what's important in life and who I am before a loving God. I just needed to hear the gospel of Jesus again. This is a man who's heard the gospel of Christ his whole life, but he was reminded. He was reminded that, that at the foot of the cross, um, we are just 
desperately and deeply loved by a God who is seeking to, um, seeking to um, pour his Holy Spirit into us and conform us more and more to the image of his son Jesus. And that's the place that we're, we're called to be. Rather than, and if we want to have a radically powerful ministry to the people in our lives and the people in our town, we have to be people that are clinging to that experience of radical grace at the foot of the cross, reminded that we all need a Savior all of the time, because the trending of our religious upbringing is going to probably always get us to that place where we're going to rest or hide under the umbrella or the veneer of being overtly religious. And so we have to be very careful. And that is really what Paul is trying to expose here in these religious Jews. And I believe what the Holy Spirit wants to expose in all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, call ourselves Christians in um, a world today and, and uh, like to faithfully attend church, which is an awesome, wonderful thing, and you must all do it. But um, still, that's not, what, that's not what God's after. He's after our hearts. And so with that, I want to just invite, I want to invite the